Nehemiah's final reforms. On that day, the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people, and there it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God because they had not met the Israelites with food and water, but had hired Balaam to call a curse down on them. Our God, however, turned the curse into a blessing. When the people heard this law, they excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. Before this, Eliashib the priest had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah, and he had provided him with a large room for, formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles, and also the tithes of grain, new wine, and oil prescribed for the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Some time later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. Here I learned about the evil things Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobiah's household household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms, and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, and that all the Levites and singers responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. All Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine and oil into the storerooms. I put Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe and a Levite named Padiah in charge of the storerooms and made Hanan, son of Zachar, the son of Mataniah, their assistant, because these men were considered trustworthy. They were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their brothers. Remember me for this, O oh my God, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. In those days, I saw men in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain, loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. Men from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this wicked thing you are doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your forefathers do the same thing? 
so that our God brought all this calamity upon us and upon this city? Now you are stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. When evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not opened until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gates so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem. But I warned them and said, Why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember me for this also, O my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. Moreover, in those days, I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, You are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now that you too are doing all these terrible terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign, foreign women? One of the sons of Joaita, son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to son Balat, the Horonite, and I drove him away from me. Remember them, O oh my God, because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. So I purified the priests and the Levites of everything foreign and assigned them duties, each to their own task. I also made provision for contributions of wood at designated times and for the first fruits. Remember me with favor, O oh my God. Uh, for many summer holidays, uh, we've camped on the west coast of France, and if you've been there, you know that there's big Atlantic waves come in, and they're great for bodyboarding. Even if you're not very good at bodyboarding like I am, you can get some good rides. But something you have to really watch out for is drift, for drifting. Um, it's really easy to drift along the beach as the waves come in at an angle, and uh, if you drift and it's really busy, it's, and it's quite easy to lose where you are on the beach. If you just look at the waves around you, you don't notice drift. As soon as you look back at the beach, you notice drift. Now, if you're a Christian, 
greater, far greater than the danger of falling dramatically, although that, of course, is a danger, but far greater than that and more likely is just more gradually drifting away from the living God. It's what Nehemiah discovered was happening in his day, back in the 5th century BC. After 12 years of rebuilding Jerusalem, calling people back to God, verse 6 tells us that Nehemiah had to return to the capital of the Persian Empire. But when he returns to Judah again, to his frustration, he found that in his absence, people had drifted from living for God. Nehemiah, he begins his work in Jerusalem with great hopes. He ends his book with great disappointment, utterly frustrated. I don't know what your experience is, but I, I think it's right to say that faith in this world goes hand in hand with deep frustrations. Yeah, maybe last week, if you hear last week in chapter 12, uh, we joined the nation of Judah. They were dancing with joy around the walls of the completed city of Jerusalem. Maybe you felt, though, far from feeling joyful. Maybe today, talk of God-given joy actually only adds to your frustration. But you're not the Christian you want to be or hope to be, or expected by now to be. Well, that's where Nehemiah ends his book. He's trying to be faithful, but he's frustrated. So, that's you. Be encouraged. God the Holy Spirit has given us Nehemiah chapter 13 because he knows our frustrations. God is real with us. So we're going to dive in, and we're going to feel Nehemiah's frustrations at spiritual drift this morning. We're going to learn what it looks like to fight for faith, and at times, that to be expressed in inappropriate ways. And as we do that, we're going to probe a little of the inner workings of our hearts, try and help us to identify where we might be drifting. And if you're not a Christian here this morning yet, then, well, here's an honest window into imperfect faith that is true of every believer. It's kind of gritty faith. But it's faith in a God who is big enough for that. He's big enough for our struggles. The first thing, frustration when we drift from living for God in our worship, in our worship, so that our worship is neglected. Nehemiah's people had drifted into very secular ways of thinking and living. And that is where, well, God feels small to us. And people feel big. In practice, we can end up living pretty godless. Our worship becomes a bit careless. It's kind of take it or leave it. Now, back in Ezra, chapter 1 to 6, Way back in the summer term, I think it was, we looked at that last year. Zerubbabel, he'd returned. He was one of the leaders of the people. He'd returned 
from exile with the first wave of people coming back, back home. And they had rebuilt the ruined temple. But now in Nehemiah 13, verses 1 to 14, it's a bit like Zerubbabel's work is all unraveling as the temple worship is neglected. Let's look at verses 1 to 3. There's a rediscovery there that their enemies, the Ammonites and the Moabites, had so corrupted their worship in the past that at this stage in history, they were banned. Now, this exclusion was not for ethnic reasons, but for purity reasons. In fact, many people from other nations, could they did seek God and find God at the temple. I mean, the book of Ruth in the Old Testament is a classic example of that, a Moabite who becomes a believer. Now, the people excluded here, they were worshipping other gods. The danger was they led God's people astray. But in Nehemiah's absence, verses 4 to 6, Eliashib, the priest in charge, well, look at what he's done. He's cleared out uh, resources for worship out of one of the storerooms um, in the temple, and he's given it as private residence to Tobiah, who was an Ammonite, who had consistently opposed the rebuilding of Jerusalem. <laughs> Look at what Nehemiah does when he finds out in verse 8. I'd love to have seen this. Um, I was greatly displeased and threw out all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. My word, that's pretty drastic, isn't it? I gave orders to purify the rooms and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. Now, um, maybe Eliashib's uh, close to Tobiah through marriage or through trade. We're not told. But either way, he was drifting on the waves of godless thinking and living. So caught up with his, his kind of worldly associations that God's way of worship seemed strangely well, irrelevant to him. God was small. People were big. And he was careless. He was indifferent to God's worship. He was neglectful. And this neglect of God's worship had spread to the people. So the temple staff, in verse 10 onwards, the temple staff weren't able to give themselves to their work because they weren't being paid properly. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them. And that all the Levites and the musicians responsible for the service, well, they'd gone back to their own fields. They were trying to earn a living, trying to survive. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? Well, in verses 11 to 13, Nehemiah sorts this out. and He puts it right, but just feel hit the tone of frustration in verse 14. His frustration at spiritual drift. Remember me for this, my God. Do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. It's a bit like he's saying, God, I, I tried my best. And we're left longing for the Messiah. Who's going to change hearts. We're left longing for Jesus who who, like Nehemiah, he threw out those who were behaving godless and were distracting from the true worship in God's temple in his day. Jesus, who astonishingly 
in John 2, verse 19 to 21, said, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And John tells us the temple he had spoken of was his body. So that today, the temple we come to to worship God is not a place, but a person. The Lord Jesus Christ, who died for our sins and three days later rose again. So we can be forgiven and we can have our hearts changed to worship God. And we need to see afresh that he is worthy. He is worthy of our worship. I don't know about you. I so easily drift in this. I drift on the wave of secular, godless thinking and living that is all around us. Drift from worshipping God for Jesus in all of life. So I can become careless and neglectful of living a life of worship. I wonder if you too find that you're frustrated at times in this. As a believer, you have the Holy Spirit living within you. But you struggle not to drift and neglect the worship of God in your life. Maybe today, God seems small to you and people seem big. And a telltale sign that of this is that, well, our times alone with God in his word and prayer, or our times with his people become less frequent. God feels strangely distant and irrelevant to you. Maybe you'd say, actually, if you're honest, you're an undercover Christian outside of church. This week, I I asked a few people, um, what's the main way you're tempted to drift from living a life of faith in Jesus? I wonder if you can relate to any of these. So one person says, in my experience, it is often a slow burn. Over time, my heart grows colder to Jesus and to his word. And my desire to read his word and spend time with him weakens. And my natural laziness means that I take less care of my spiritual health, which means that Jesus becomes more distant in my life. And so it continues. It's very honest, very helpful. I wonder if you can relate to that. I know I can. Or someone else. Um, I drift or on drift. So when discouragement happens, but I, I wouldn't say I get tempted to drift spiritually, but I would say that those discouragements become bigger in my mind than they should do. And that can make me lose focus on the bigger picture. Somebody else. Um, when I feel emotionally flat or tired, and I'm tempted to go through the motions of reading the Bible, singing, etc., without feeling able to engage my heart. You know, when Jesus returns, and that day's coming, when he returns, forever in his new creation, whole life worship will be as natural as the sweet air 
will breathe for all eternity. But until then, until then, we will always need to cry out to God, the Holy Spirit, saying, like Nehemiah, oh, remember me, Lord, in our struggle against spiritual drift to godless thinking and living. So, we can drift in our worship, but then secondly, frustrations when we drift from living for God in our obedience. Our obedience. And this is verses 13, um, sorry, verses 15 to 22. And this is where God's supremacy, his greatness is ignored. And in Nehemiah's day, they had, they had drifted into very materialistic ways of, of thinking and of living. This is where material things become too important to us. To Nick um, Madonna's phrase, we are material girls and boys living not just in, but for the material world. Living just for here and now, not for God. Now, let's rewind back to Ezra chapter 7 to 10. Ezra, many years before, had returned from exile in Babylon, back to Judah with a second wave of people. And he'd come to reestablish God's word in the nation. But now in Nehemiah 13, verses 15 to 22, it's like Ezra's work. Well, that's all being unraveled. The word of God is disobeyed as they lived for material things. And it showed in their failure to rest to keep the Sabbath. Now, God sent, set this pattern at creation, commanded it to his people, one day in seven free from work for rest and worship, to delight in God. And the Sabbath, it was this powerful statement about their priorities. They spent the day resting and worshiping together around God's word. So that any trader who turned up wanting to buy and sell, was going to get disappointed. The Sabbath was a rebuke to living just for here and now. One work-free day a week was an in-your-face way of saying material things, they are not the most important thing to us. We are serious about our God. He is more important to us than his good gifts. But Nehemiah now finds that the people are drifting on the waves of thinking and living as though material things actually matter most. They were too busy working to step off the treadmill and stop and rest and worship. One in seven. It's there in verses 15 to 18. In those days, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. People from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this wicked thing you're doing? Desecrating the Sabbath day. Didn't your ancestors do the same thing so that our God brought on all this calamity on us and, our, on, our, and on this city? 
Now you're stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. And so in verses 19 to 22, Nehemiah takes what are again drastic measures to ensure that at least in Jerusalem, people stop work on the Sabbath. So verse 19, he imposes this 24-hour lockdown. He literally locks down the city, locks the gates. Verses 20 and 21, merchants who turn up on the Sabbath, he warns them and then threatens to arrest them. Verse 22, he posts a guard at the gates. But again in verse 22, just feel his frustration at the spiritual drift. Remember me for this also, my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. And again, it's like he's saying, God, I, I tried. I tried my best. And again, we are longing for the Messiah who's going to change hearts. Jesus, who invites us to come to him and find our Sabbath rest in him so that we stop trying to get right with God by working, working, working. But trust in his finished work, his perfect work for us on the cross where the price for our sin was paid, that we might rest in his salvation. And of course, freely, willingly obey him so that whilst Jesus' coming has changed what it looks like to keep Sabbath, foundational creation, one in seven principle of worshiping with God's people, stopping to rest, becomes our delight, not our burden, becomes our priority. And we need to see afresh that God is supreme. He is greatest. He is supreme over our lives, including our time, including our work, our weekly rhythms of rest. And again, I have to say, I so easily drift on this, on the wave of material thinking and living that lives just for here and now, so that material things become too important to me. More than God. And so that spiritual realities, they well, they seem less important, they seem rather distant. I wonder if you two find there are times you're frustrated in this. As a believer, you have the Holy Spirit of God living within you, but you struggle not to drift and to ignore that God is supreme over all of life not least in healthy rhythms of work and rest in your week. Well, in all honesty, work demands make it really hard to stop and rest. Work commitments make it hard. Where life can be just so crazy busy. Or maybe you, someone who just feels guilty stopping. And resting. Some more responses from uh, people I asked this week about being tempted to drift. Again, if you can relate to any of these. One person says, When I only surround myself with others who are taken up with the demands of the world, pressure, 
materialism, the pursuit of happiness. So it feels the norm to me to be like that, rather than when I have those around me that even when in those same situations and under pressure, they're on fire for God and his values, well, then this helps me to refocus on what is important. Or somebody else, um, just being busy with life. Still reading the Bible and going to church, etc., but not pausing long enough to dwell on God, meditate on what he has done and is doing, drinking from his riches. Or somebody else, um, focusing on what I'm doing rather than what Jesus has done. Older brother of the prodigal uh, uh, syndrome, forgetting the father's enthusiastic grace towards me. Or somebody else, when I fall into the habit of depending on my ability to do things rather than fully learning and depending upon Christ. You know, when Jesus returns, and that day is coming, forever in his new creation, obeying God as supreme over all things, over our work, over our rest, for all eternity, that will be as natural as the sweet, sweet air will breathe forever. But until then, we're always going to need to cry out to God, the Holy Spirit, saying like Nehemiah, oh Lord, would you remember me? In our struggle against spiritual drift to just here and now thinking and living. So frustrations when we drift from living for God in our worship, in our obedience, lastly, in our faithfulness, verses 23 to 31. And in a way that God's love is betrayed by us. Nehemiah's people would drift into very, if you like, pluralistic ways of thinking and living. So that's when in a multi-faith, and a multi-worldview society, we become less convinced that Jesus is the only way to God. Or at the very least, we become less confident about faith in Jesus. So it becomes more of a kind of private thing. It doesn't really impact our big and our small real-life choices as it should. Now, again, let's back up. So Nehemiah chapter 1 to 7. Um, Nehemiah has returned with the third wave of people from exile in Babylon to Judah. And he came back to rebuild the city walls of Jerusalem. That was his big job, keeping them safe and, and distinct from the surrounding nations. Now in Nehemiah 13, verses 23 to 31, it's a bit like Nehemiah's work is all getting unraveled as they betray God's love for them, and they mix their worship with the surrounding nations. And it showed in them choosing to marry outside of the faith. Look at verses 23 and 24. In those days, I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak 
the language of Judah. Now, a um, bit of context here. So back in a day when um, men were the main breadwinners and the men were out at work, women were at home looking after the kids, the children would be brought up by their wives who not only introduced the children to their foreign gods and their false gods, they taught them their own language instead of the language of Judah. So the language of Judah was not known, but that was the language of the scriptures. You see the spiritual impact of that. It was a total failure to pass on the faith to the next generation. Their marriages to people of other faiths in practice work to draw them and their families away from God. Now, if you go to 1 Corinthians 7, um, the Apostle Paul talks there that if you're someone who's a believer, married to someone who's not yet a believer, then the, that's a blessing to them. If that's the situation you're in. And there's huge opportunity for gospel in, impact and blessing there. But Nehemiah sees the people are drifting on the waves of thinking and living as though truth is relative. In other words, that all roads can lead somehow to God. Where God is worshipped, but alongside other gods. And as Nehemiah tries to sort this out, he gets angry and it gets ugly. Look, verse 25 is not how to respond to Christians who've fallen short or sinned or disappointed us. Have a look at it. I rebuked them. And called curses down on them, I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. Now, imagine, imagine if you, you, you're going out with friends this afternoon. I don't know what you're doing this afternoon. You go out with friends this afternoon and you turn up all bruised and you've got hair missing. And they go, What happened? And they say, You say, Well, it was the elders of Binscombe Church. <laughs> they beat me up. And they pulled out my hair and cursed me. <laughs> Man, what is going on? Imagine. It is shocking. And I don't think at this point Nehemiah is acting in line with the grace of God. Can I just say, though, before we cancel him and everything he's done, because that is what our culture is teaching us to do with anyone who steps out of line, isn't it? I do want to ask myself, Okay, he's done wrong. But I do want to ask myself, how zealous am I in my faithfulness to God? I mean, his actions, I think, are very wrong here. But his heart and his thinking isn't. Let's have a look at it in verse 26. He reasons with them. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, was there no king like him? There was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we now hear that you are doing this, all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? Well, in verse 28, Nehemiah drives away a bad influencer on the priesthood. But again in verse 29, have a look at it. And just feel his frustration at the spiritual drift. Remember them, my God, because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. And in verses 30 and 31, he purifies the priests, setting them to their work. 
But have a look at the end of verse 31. How he ends the book is on this same note of deep frustration. Remember me with favor, my God. And again, it's like he's saying, God, God, I, I tried my best. And we are left longing for the Messiah. Who's going to change hearts. Jesus, who, whose faithful love is more beautiful than anything we've known and never betrays. And who calls us not to betray him. So that in our multi-faith, multi-worldview culture, like Nehemiah, like Nehemiah's was, we believe Jesus when he says in John 14 and verse 6, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one. Absolutely no one. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, is that right or not? And then it's allowing Jesus' exclusive claims here and his call to worship him alone to shape our big life choices. Here in this passage, it's if the Lord calls us to marry, it's who to marry. And if we have kids, how to unashamedly teach them the wonder of the gospel. We need to see afresh that God is more beautiful. I always won't get this. That his love is more faithful. That his truth is true truth. And again, I confess, I so easily drift on this, on the wave of thinking that faithfulness to God can be a private affair rather than impacting all of life. And let me share a particular temptation that I as a pastor, as a preacher, face on this, and I'm tempted to drift. And that is, particularly from this passage, is to actually stop preaching that Christians should marry Christians. Or that parents should disciple their children unashamedly to know and love the gospel. In an age where, well, the world and actually some professing Christians are saying it's not loving, it's not appropriate to say such personal things. Well, I wonder if you too find that there are times where you're frustrated in this. As a believer, you have the Holy Spirit of God. You struggle not to drift towards a more kind of apologetic, kind of private, fluffy kind of faith. But fails to be faithful to Jesus' call to radical discipleship in life's big choices and in the small choices. A couple more responses from people who shared on how they were tempted to drift. I wonder if you can relate to these. Someone says this. Is it worth it? Which I think is actually connected to 
Is it true? If I always really believed it was true, I would know deep down that it is worth it all. But from time to time, the sacrifices seem big. Brackets, relatively small compared to so many others, I realize. Or somebody else. When people I'm close friends with aren't living God's way, especially when they hold views that are acceptable by, accepted by the majority. Do you know, when Jesus returns, and that day is coming, isn't it? Hands up, is that day coming? It's coming, definitely coming. Forever in his new creation, then faithfulness to God in all of life, that is going to come as naturally to us as the sweet, sweet, sweet air we breathe for all eternity. But until then, until then, we, we will always need to cry out to God, God the Holy Spirit living within us, saying, like Nehemiah, Lord, remember me in our struggle against spiritual drift towards a, a more fluffy kind of faith of live and let live, thinking and, and living. You know, thankfully, God is big enough for our struggles. He is big enough for my imperfect faith and for your imperfect faith. If you look only at the waves of our culture that we swim in, it's really hard to spot. You can't spot drift. But look up at the shore of God's word and what he says here on worship and obedience and faithfulness and probe your heart to see where you are drifting from, li from living for God. I wonder where it is for you today particularly. Where is the drift? Where is the danger of drift? It's probably going to be more one of those things than the rest. It's probably to some extent all of them. It is for me. But where is it mainly? In our frustrations of spiritual drift. Let's cry out to God the Holy Spirit. Remember me. Fill me. Empower me. You're the helper. Be my helper. Knowing that actually... That is exactly what he does best until Jesus returns.